Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Aging is a fact of life, and it affects all families. As adult children, when imagining our parents as seniors, we may not fully comprehend the extent to which their aging will affect them or how it will affect us. Elder Care for Families stresses management and resources to help navigate life's challenges. On Call with the Prairie Doc, health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 21st season, promoting health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss elder care for families. Joining us to address this topic are Dr. Joseph Rees from Geriatrics and Internal Medicine, Avera Medical Group, and Dr. Priscilla Beatty from Monument Health Rapid City Clinic. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us here in Brookings and through Zoom. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Dr. Beatty, uh, would you like to start? Uh, ladies first, tell us uh, uh, what your specialty is and how long you've been practicing. I'm a specialist in internal medicine and geriatrics. All right, and how long have you been in Rapid City? Since 1998. Excellent. So, and um, was there something that kind of brought you out to Rapid City or uh, what drew you to that uh, side of the state? Well, I was practicing at the Sioux Falls VA after doing my geriatrics fellowship and I was seeing mostly older men. I met David Sandvik from Rapid City and he was interested in doing some geriatrics research and he invited me to move out and I've been here ever since. All right, well, wonderful. Sounds like you had a, a great opportunity that you found, but are you a uh, native South Dakota or did you come here for training? Well, I grew up in Minnesota. I went to college and medical school at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I did a year of training in Minneapolis before transferring to the internal medicine residency in Sioux Falls. So that's how I got to South Dakota. All right, well, we're glad you came, so all right. Well, thank you. And Dr. Rees, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. And so I am an internal medicine geriatrician as well. I started out my career about 11 years ago as a hospitalist at Avera McKinnon, and then over the last five years have transitioned into geriatrics. So now I do full-time geriatric practice, uh, half days in the morning in the clinic, and then half days in the afternoons going to see patients at nursing homes and assisted livings in Sioux Falls and a little bit of the surrounding areas. Okay. I make it outside of Sioux Falls occasionally. All right, so is geriatrics a separate specialty of internal medicine? Is it a fellowship or kind of, how does one become a specialist in strictly geriatrics? It is a fellowship beyond internal medicine. You can also get to that same track through family medicine. So uh, it's a one-year fellowship after internal medicine. So that's what, I, I actually did that over two years because I did a part-time track where I did full-time hospital medicine practice and half-time geriatric practice working 12 days on, two days off, or did that for two years. 
All right. Less happy to be done with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and now I, I've entered into that world, so I, I understand. <laughs> so hospitalists are, are definitely needed, and clinic docs are needed as well. So, well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about elder care. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send us an email at ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So lots of things to talk about with family members, caregiving for loved ones. Um, so I would say let's, let's kind of start about a family member caring for a loved one. What instances would that be necessary? I mean, it sounds like there's kind of a whole spectrum here, but when does one find that they're a caregiver? Is this something that people kind of sign up for or is it kind of bestowed upon them? What have you seen in your experience? Um, Dr. Uh, Beatty, what, is it something people sign up for? Is it something that kind of happens because it's a need and no one else steps up? I think most of the time it happens when there's a need. If there's some activity of daily living or instrumental activity of daily living that their loved one needs help with and it comes to their attention. Some people are better at recognizing this than others. Some are in a better position to recognize it than others, usually the ones that live locally and see their loved one most often. But sometimes it happens because their loved one ends up in the hospital because they're sick and they can't take care of themselves or they fell and had a fracture. And now all of a sudden we have to find a place. It might be that they need short-term rehabilitation or it might be that they've been declining and no one realized just how much trouble they were in until this crisis happens. And then they need long-term placement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there can be a big continuation. So um, what sort of things do uh, your patients generally need help with but are still able to remain in their home? So I think the majority of patients that I see need help bathing, getting dressed. Those are probably the two biggest things that I see. Sometimes it's help with just as much as meal preparation and, and having a meal or eating a meal and cleaning up afterwards. So those are the things that I think are the most common things that you see needing help with early. So okay. preparing a meal, getting dressed, taking a shower, taking a bath, making sure that's done. Mm -hmm. And uh, to go back a little bit, about 75% of caregivers or 74% of caregivers uh, did not, not want to be caregivers. They kind of were, felt like it was the only option available to them if they didn't provide care then their loved one would not get the care. And so you, when you think about that, most of the people that are providing care have done so somewhat uh, involuntary. Mm -hmm. Yes. And with this level of care, like you said, it can be as simple as checking in on them, 
you know, going in and having lunch with them each day. Or it could be as extreme as that person moves in with you or you move into their home to take care of them. So, and definitely, uh, I think that you talked about the bathing can be a very big issue. And, you know, there are bath aids available because I know some, some patients, some, especially this generation, very private, may not want their child to see them in the shower, may not want that assistance. And then I've known lots of uh, falls that happen in the bathroom, in the shower. People that have, you know, I remember in my previous practice, there was a, a patient that fell in the bathtub, wasn't able to get out and laid there for three days until someone checked on them and found out that they were lying there in, in a pool of cold water and were really injured and needed to be taken to the hospital. So, so the, for those people that, that want to keep that um, privacy, uh, or at least that distance from their family, you know, if you don't want your daughter-in-law putting you in the shower as an elderly gentleman, you know, how do they get that help that they need? Uh, I think the best way to do that, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHS, at uh, the, the state website has some great resources for you. So you can certainly go on there. Dakota at Home will be accessed through that website and some of the other accesses. 211 is another phone number you can call and get access to some of those services. They can get you connected with either a home health agency maybe that would provide that service, a bath aid, or they can get you uh, connected with uh, somebody that can help you with that. Visiting Angels is another source of uh, potential use. They don't often provide bath aids, but sometimes they will get you connected to somebody that can provide that bath aid service. Is that what you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Same thing with if you need help getting on and off the toilet. Sometimes that can be another one of those times where it becomes a little bit uh, of a privacy issue. And so finding some ways to do that without having your loved one, that becomes a little harder because you have to have that person there at the time. And so sometimes the loved one just yeah. has to kind of get over that privacy issue at some point mm -hmm. because otherwise they're not going to get the care they need and are going to have right. to go somewhere to get that care if they want to stay in their home. And so I think looking out for DHS, looking out for some of those home health care agencies, certainly you can talk to your primary care provider about that. They should mm -hmm. be able to find some of those resources if they're having trouble then reaching out to the Department of Health and Human Services. The Alzheimer's.org Association, even if they don't have dementia, knows some of those resources as well, and the American Association of Retired People has a very vast network of those types of things. And so those two areas are very good resources, or three or four areas are very good resources to find the information you're looking for and, and can get the help you need. If you don't live in South Dakota, if you live in Minnesota or one of the surrounding areas, mm -hmm. they all have a Department of Health and Human Services that'll have that same access to that same information. Excellent. So um, what resources or things um, that would you recommend um, Dr. Beatty, for patients that have to manage their medications, because that seems to be an also a difficult thing, as seniors have lots of meds, and if there's concerns of some memory, are they not taking their pills? Because that seems to be a common thing that I get to family, like, you know, this pill bottle was filled a month ago, and it is still three-fourths full. Now, what do I do with this? How do I know they're taking their pills? Well, one important thing is to assess the memory and planning abilities of the loved one. Um, but if they have the ability to remember what day it is and know what time of day it is, um, there are um, pharmacies that can package up the pills so that all you have to do is open the packet for one day. You could also set up the pills in a pill organizing box where there's 
maybe one compartment for each day of the week. If you're lucky enough to have only daily medications, you can get some with as many as four compartments per day. Um, what I have to do to take my medicine is set an alarm on my watch for the evening medicine as a reminder. Yeah. It's <laughs> hard to take something more than once a day. It, it definitely is. Can I add one thing to Please that? Please do. So they have pill minders mm -hmm. that you can put the pills in and it'll actually charm uh, or chime and beep. Mm -hmm. And so then you can use that as a way to help remind. There are quite a few of them out there online. You just have to go and search a pill minder on the internet. And so then it'll beep and tell you when to take your pills. The pill actually, the, the box that you're supposed to take for that time opens up. You dump it in your hand, you take your pills, and then you're done. You wow. do have to have somebody that sets that up for you. Mm -hmm. So uh, usually once a week or uh, maybe a little bit less often than that, depending upon how many pills you're taking. Sometimes that can be once every two weeks or something like that, but it's a super nice, uh, easy way to help remind somebody to take their medicines if they're forgetting. Mm -hmm. And then remembering that if someone goes to the doctor and their medications are changed, now that pill box has to be adjusted. And you have to know which color, which is the little yellow pill and which is the red one and which one did we just change here. So that can be a challenge sometimes. But That is a very big challenge. Yeah. Now, speaking of going to the doctor, it's not a bad idea to have somebody go with you to the doctor um, because they can help you remember and they can ask questions that you might not think to ask at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely um, have it. Another issue that can come up is the, the ability to manage finances. Uh, scammers love old people because they're easy prey. Um, another problem can be if the person doesn't remember to pay their bills on time and their gas and electricity may be in danger of being shut off. Not that they didn't intend to pay, but it just didn't occur to him that it was time to write that check. Mm -hmm. yeah. So setting up automatic bill pay may be good. Um, it's also important that somebody can be power of attorney for you mm -hmm. or for your loved one. Um, and it can be a separate person for finances versus somebody to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. But it's important to have those conversations with your family about what your wishes would be at end of life. Because our default in our system is if you didn't tell anybody you didn't want to be resuscitated, well, you're going to be resuscitated. Even if your chances of survival are quite low and you wouldn't really want it. So it's good to have those conversations ahead of time before the crisis happens. Yes, so Thanksgiving is coming up. Talk to your family members at Thanksgiving, make sure they know. And I know I'll ask patients about this a lot of the time is, what do you want done? Well, I filled out a form a long time ago. I was like, well, I know you, you filled out a form. I want to hear it from you today. What is your decision today? Because my parents filled out their power of attorney when I was in college. And my brother, the accountant, is the power of attorney for healthcare, and I am not. Now it would be a little bit more appropriate probably for me to be the power of attorney for healthcare and him to be the power of attorney for finances given our jobs and our specialties. When I was in college and the form was filled out, totally appropriate for me not to be in charge of medical decisions as a college freshman. But now as an adult physician, you know, so plans change, things change, so it's good to get one, to get it filled out, two, your family to know what it says, and three, to update it regularly, especially if things or situations change. So, all right. 
Well, dementia can be a hard disease to manage with family, but Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a personal dementia care provider on her online tips on how to handle this syndrome. Adria Thompson is a speech-language pathologist and owner of Be Light Care Consulting, which started in 2021. She started the company after not finding much help online with dementia care. It kind of came from all the ideas and experience and help that I knew I could give not only personal but professional caregivers in the world of dementia. I've been a speech language pathologist for eight years and my specialty is working with people with dementia. And I just learned a lot over the years that I felt like would be really helpful. And I went on social media platforms and saw that that didn't really exist. Be Light Care Consulting does training on dementia care for staff of nursing homes, training for other speech-language pathologists, and even personal one-on-ones. So I'll do Zoom conversations like this one-on-one -on -one with people who are caring for individuals with dementia, and we'll just go over all of the struggles that they're facing, and I provide them some insight into why that's happening and then what they can do instead. The training consists of teaching more about behaviors of dementia patients and how they speak and act. So it's important to me to train staff to identify the fact that dementia is a disease of the brain and that they're doing the best they can. And so we talk a lot about the types of dementia, the stages of dementia, and how that will impact how they go about their day and how we can support them. Around the same time her business started, she started posting videos to social media about tips on how to help dementia patients to prove she knew what she was talking about. She then exploded in popularity online. I made these videos basically for that reason. And personal caregivers, people at home taking care of individuals with dementia, just started picking it up and it exploded within a month. I had over 100,000 followers and I realized, hey, this information is needed really bad. Her videos get anywhere from thousands to millions of views with comments talking about how helpful Thompson has been and what they want to see more of. I think it's really fun creatively. I enjoy creating these videos, but the interaction that I have with my followers really helped me know what to target next or what they're really needing to see. And with all the online tips she gives, Thompson wants to remind dementia caregivers that there are a lot of people like her out there that want to help. There are a lot of people out there like me who want to help. So don't feel alone and don't feel hopeless because it's just a different season. And um, there's definitely hope in this, in this situation. social media help spread awareness for health problems like dementia? Have you been seeing more patients coming in and say, hey, I'm, I'm in this support group on Facebook or? I have seen quite a bit more people uh, have uh, concerns about memory loss, concerns about dementia. I don't think that we, uh, you know, there's not a lot of great options out there for treatment. So I don't think it's spread as, uh, it's still there's a big stigma around dementia. And so people don't like to hear that diagnosis and don't like to talk about it. And so a lot of times I think even though it's becoming a little bit more common to hear and 
learn things about dementia. I think that uh, that's made it a little bit difficult. I do think there are some things coming that are pretty exciting research-wise, and hopefully they'll make it into community practice. And once they start doing that, I think we'll talk about dementia a lot more because I think we'll be able to diagnose it a little earlier, and we may be able to even slow down some of that progression even more than we do now. So Wonderful. it's exciting. Excellent. Well, let's get to some viewer questions here. It said, what are your thoughts on the medication Prevagen? Do you believe it's helpful in improving memory loss? Priscilla, I'm going to let you answer this one. <laughs> I don't have data on it. Okay. It's advertised over the counter, but I don't know of um, randomized controlled trials that have formally tested it. And that's the problem with a lot of these supplements. They're not FDA regulated, so. Yeah, so nobody's done any testing on this. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of evidence-based. So if you're looking at practicing what we, we as physicians describe as evidence-based medicine, where you do randomized controlled trials with a drug and then with a placebo medicine and see that there is a difference with that medication, there is not that for Prevagen. So, I don't think there are usually a lot of harms with Prevagen. It is rather expensive, so that might be considered a harm if you're looking cost-wise at medicines. So Prevagen is kind of expensive, and so I don't mind if my patients take Prevagen. Uh, I will tell you, I've had a few patients come back and tell me they feel like it's been helping them. I've had some patients come back and tell me that they didn't think it worked. And so I don't, I'm not opposed to giving Prevagen or not, but uh, again, the evidence is a little unclear because we don't have those randomized controlled trials where we're comparing it with uh, either some of the medicines that we do have that are approved or even just uh, a sugar pill. Right. And so it's hard to say whether or not it's worthwhile taking. All right. Well, this is a question that I really wanted to base the entire show over. Who do people talk to when they need to make the decision to move their loved one into a skilled nursing facility, even when that loved one does not want to go? That is, I think, probably the hardest thing we deal with as, as physicians. Dr. Beatty, um, I'm sure you've had that conversation many times with uh, patients and family members uh, in your office when the kids say, you know, I don't think mom and dad are safe at home and they don't want to leave the farm, they don't want to, you know, go to a nursing home. Well, actually, what I see most of the time is that there's some sort of crisis. Um, the loved one ends up in the hospital with illness or injury or a combination. And then the care managers at the hospital are meeting with the patient and the family um, a lot of times we'll have a physical and an occupational therapist and maybe a speech therapist to evaluate the loved one and we find out their function is not sufficient for them to be able to return home safely. And then they kind of either have to step up and spend time with that loved one at home or make sure they've got services in home or oftentimes that's not even practical because you can't find a 24-hour caregiver to hire mm -hmm. and so the loved one ends up in a nursing home. Um, we talk about nursing homes like it's a fate worse than death but it doesn't have to be. No, I, I always tell my my patients, you know, Try it for a month. After after a month, let's reassess and see if you absolutely still hate it. It's kind of like being in the dorms at college, except you don't have to go to class. 
you got activities, you've got someone making your meals, someone doing your laundry. Heck, I'd move into a nursing home if I could right now. You don't have to clean, you've got, you know, there's music, there's bingo. So it's really, I think nursing homes have come a long way from where they were when I was growing up and visited my grandma. It's, it's not that sterile, dark, dingy, smelly places that they used to be. They've really come a long way. And I, I think when you're thinking about somebody that needs to do that, I, my personal opinion is I usually try to get ahead of the curve. So I usually try to talk to my patients about this maybe three, four years before I think they're even going to need a nursing home. And often my conversation is go to some nursing homes, see them. And a lot of times that changes their mind as they go look at a nursing home, as they go see the local nursing homes. Experiment with a couple of them. Don't just go to one and be like, okay, I, don't want, I, don't, I definitely don't want that one, or this one really is nice and I really like this one. There may be another one that you like even more. So I often will have this, I often try to have this conversation ahead of time if I can, if I see that it's coming. Sometimes, as Priscilla noted, you don't see that it's coming and then all of a sudden it's a surprise when they're in the hospital. I think a primary care provider is a perfect place to have that conversation. I typically like to have the family members there with me when I'm having that conversation. Sometimes the family members don't like to be there because it's a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation because they're saying, we can't do this and we can't do that. And the family's like, yes, you can. And so it becomes a little bit of an argument. Usually I try to work around that. I usually try to have the family express their concerns and why they feel like a nursing home is needed. And then I listen to the patient and why they don't want to go to a nursing home. And then we try to work through some of those details and see if we can't figure out how to negotiate uh, some of those types of things. And again, I find going to the nursing home being probably the best thing. I have many patients that get to the nursing home and thrive in the nursing mm -hmm. home. They, yes. were, they were going downhill, 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 downhill. All of a sudden they get to the nursing home and now all of a sudden they're going uphill, 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 and they're looking really good and they're like, I wanna leave the nursing home. And I'm like, well, maybe that's a little too premature because you're just now starting to get better. I don't think you can still take care of yourself at home. And we, we have that conversation about some of those things. So that's where I think the, the conversation belongs is really with the primary care providers because the primary care providers know the patients the best and can provide some of that longitudinal insight. I have had that conversation as the first visit and that's a little uncomfortable and awkward because I don't know them very well and so I, I, I do rely on the family members to provide some of that background and understanding of what help they need and how we can best meet that need if we can meet it at home. And so I do try to talk to them about this is what it would look like if we do this at home and this is what it looks mm -hmm. like if we try to do this in the nursing home. And so that's how I typically have the conversations. I usually find them to go fairly well Sometimes I have a few patients that just are absolutely adamant about not going into a nursing home. And again, the success that I've had in doing that is just having them say, don't think about going in, just go look at it and see what you think after you go see it. Then we can talk about what the concerns are and what the challenges are. And usually when they come back, they're usually not quite as opposed to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so another very good question from a viewer here. What if my loved one cannot afford a nursing home? Finances are a huge thing. What resources are there to help them get into a facility and, and pay for that facility? I know a lot of people are worried we're going to lose the family farm. It's going to go to the nursing home. How do we pay for this? Um, Dr. Beatty, do you have any comments or? Well, if you're going to a nursing home after an acute hospital stay that qualifies for Medicare Part A, that can get you in the door. Um, 
Medicare does not cover long-term care in nursing homes, um, but they will help with the cost of rehab if you meet their criteria. It'll cover the first 20 days in full, and then after that, there's a copay. And that may give you time to find out whether this needs to be a long-term thing or whether it's short-term. Um, the backup plan, if you have no resources, is Medicaid, but you have to be pretty broke to qualify for that. If you own that farm and that's where your assets are, it may end up having to be sold. Yeah, you might not be able to sell it right away, but... And this is, um, we're talking with a lawyer and estate planning. This is a this very, very good thing for a lawyer estate planner. Yes. Yeah, long-term care insurance is available, but mm -hmm. it's quite expensive. Mm -hmm. For somebody my age, it can be $800 a month, which most people don't have that kind of change lying around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely the older you get, the more expensive the premiums get for that right. long-term. Sometimes you can separate out Medicaid uh, from husband and wife. So sometimes if your husband needs a nursing home, sometimes you can, the, the Medicaid sometimes will cover the husband and allow the wife to remain at home because the wife needs a place to stay. So if you're married and have a spouse, that sometimes makes it a little easier to keep your family farm and keep your home because sometimes they'll allow you, the, wife, the husband to go on Medicaid so that mm -hmm. then the wife has a place to stay. Sometimes putting that uh, the farm in a trust is mm -hmm. maybe the best way to go so that that way it stays out of this whole process uh, and so that you don't have to worry about the asset itself. And so you definitely want to have that conversation well before you get to the fact of needing a nursing home. So you should be having that conversation now. Yes, yeah, so that five-year <laughs> look-back rule that people talk about. So. Yeah. Yes. So. so yeah, now is the time to have that conversation if you have not had that conversation. Mm -hmm. If you're even remotely thinking about that and seeing what options there are for you, I would talk to a lawyer about that and, and have that conversation. Yeah. So. Assisted living facilities are typically less expensive than nursing homes, but sure. still uh, quite costly per month. Um, mm -hmm. They don't provide as much hands-on care, and it's going to vary from one facility to the next. But if all a person needs is housekeeping services and their medications provided on time, assisted living may be a good option for them. Perfect. Well, as we've been discussing, a difficult part of our life is when we have to send a loved one to an elder care facility. But how do we know which one is right for our circumstances? Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer tells us more. Anna Tellickson and Stephanie Vlamic are registered nurses and both work at Edgewood Vista in Brookings, which is an assisted living facility. Assisted living works on the premise of independence. In order to qualify for assisted living, one needs to be at least one assist or last, so having one person assist them. Edgewood is also a memory care assisted living facility which follows the same guidelines as regular assisted living, but helps more with degenerative diseases and living with them. With dementia, with Alzheimer's, we kind of lose that ability sometimes, so we're really kind of playing on, you know, making sure that they can meet those needs. Nursing homes are for residents who are more dependent on the staff, as there is only one medical director with nurses available 24 hours a day. 
Nursing homes, they do have nurses 24 hours a day. They can have more of those complex patients, you know, the diabetic sliding scales, the more complex wounds, the maybe IVs. IVs. They can do a lot more nursing things at nursing homes. Entertainment for the elder care patients can consist of music, memory games, board games, and exercise. Exercise is another one. The ladies and guys up front can really understand a lot of multiple directions, whereas down here it's, you know, one step at a time. Just had my 90th birthday here the first part of July, so I have to say that most of my time I spend on the computer. I play games, I look up things, and that's what I do. What's it like uh, being so close to your husband? In a way, it makes it nice. I see him every day. He probably wouldn't remember me if he didn't see me every day, but uh, we do. I bring him over here and he runs that exercise machine. That gives him some activity too. Anna and Stephanie both say nursing homes are important if a loved one can't be taken care of constantly anymore. But assisted living is great if the loved one still wants to be independent without doing housework. They can save their energy for those important social gatherings with their families. They can get out and about and enjoy life, so we can take that burden off. So how does someone bring up this topic to an elderly parent saying, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about you. I, I think you may need more help than, or you shouldn't be home alone. I mean, usually I think the first thing I talk about patients is resources with like life alert buttons. Um, Cause what generally ends up someone in the hospital is they fall and they end up on the floor and they lay there for several days and then they end up with muscle damage, kidney damage from laying on the floor and, and all those injuries that go with it or the broken hip that precipitated the fall. Um, how do you guys tend to bring this up with your patients? Is it something family brings up or something you try to bring up at a, like an annual Medicare wellness visit? I do both, so I let the patients, if they have concerns about it, I let them bring it up. I think if you are addressing that with your loved one, I think it's best to be direct and say, I think it's time to think about one of these care facilities and let's go talk to the doctor about it. The patient may not like you or the, your loved one may not like you for that direct conversation, but I think it comes a little bit better if there is a direct conversation. I've had times where they're like, well, we think they need a nursing home and then they send me a message and then they tell me not to tell them that they told me that that was the thing that they wanted me to discuss during that visit. And I usually can do that, but sometimes it's helpful for the loved one to also hear that from the family. And then I think that conversation goes a little bit differently mm -hmm. when it comes from the kids as opposed to when it just comes from me. Sometimes then they stop coming to see me because mm. they're like that Dr. Reese just wants to send me to a nursing home and, and that's not really what I no. want to do it's something that the family wanted me to discuss and mm -hmm. so I'm trying to balance the family and the patient needs uh, and mm -hmm. trying to work that fine line of being close to that so I usually am pretty direct and say it's time to think about assisted living or nursing mm -hmm. home I don't usually beat around the bush and say well maybe it's time to think about it mm -hmm. I usually say it's time we should start thinking about this we should start planning for it yeah. and I, I find that goes pretty well. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, a caller here says that they live alone, have no children or caregivers. Is there any particular signs or symptoms they need to be aware of that would show they would need to go to a nursing home? So, Dr. Beatty, um, if someone doesn't have someone else kind of looking in on them, how do they know that they need more help? Well, one spouse is going to have to kind of keep an eye on the other. Um, if they are both becoming cognitively impaired, then it may be difficult. Um, if they have neighbors and friends, or perhaps their church family, they might be able to find someone to help check on them. Um, again, I do much of my work in nursing homes where we are doing evaluations of their abilities, and then they have a family conference or it can be just with the patient to discuss what their findings are and what the recommendations are. And then it's up to the patient and the family to decide what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. I know I've had a lot of times where family members have pulled me aside in this hall and said, you tell dad and mom, they need to go into the nursing home. And I'm like, this is not a prison. I cannot sentence them to the nursing home. People if they're of sound mind, are allowed to make poor decisions. And that is, I think, one of the hardest things for me as a physician, as a child, <laughs> um, as a family member to say, you know what? People are allowed to make bad decisions. And, and if they do, there may be consequences to making those decisions. If they're okay with those consequences, they may, you know, unfortunately, it usually takes a, a hospital visit for someone to say, yep, I need to go to the nursing home. Or an accident. Or sometimes an accident, a yes. bad fall. Sometimes mm -hmm. I've had, uh, they've had a bad fall, and then that's a great opportunity to say, okay, it, maybe it's time to think about this. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe they didn't end up in the hospital this time, but uh, they're, they're close to doing that next mm -hmm. time. Sometimes when I have that situation where the family tells me that I need to tell them it's time to go to a nursing home, often I will try to get from the family why they think that, and then I will try to bring that up in a way to the patient that then makes it look like we're going to the nursing home for X, Y, and Z purpose, and we'll okay. see if we can get out of the nursing home. Right. So just because you go to a nursing home doesn't mean you have to stay there forever. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the time that is the case, but that doesn't have to be a, a, a long-term plan. Exactly. It's, <laughs> like I said, it is not a prison. We don't throw you in there, lock you up, and throw away the key. You're allowed to come and go, and you're allowed to say, yeah. I'm out of here. And that we've is. had patients that checked themselves out of the nursing home and, and left. And some that said they got here and like, why didn't I do this sooner? So I would say when they want to go is, is when they feel that they have the need and if the facility feels they can meet those needs. Right. So um, can you guys talk a little bit more about memory care versus nursing home? Um, some nursing homes have a memory care unit, some don't. When does one need a memory care unit versus a regular nursing home? Dr. Beatty? Typically, the patients in a memory care unit in assisted living are able to walk and they might need help of one person. Um, and they're not having significant behavior problems like physical aggression that pose a risk to staff and other residents. 
Um, I'm medical director at a memory care nursing home and the patients that we take there uh, may have had those aggressive behavior problems or they have wandered away from regular assisted facilities. Now a memory care facility is going to typically be a locked unit um, because people with memory problems may think they're somewhere else or may think they have to be somewhere else when it's actually not the case and exit the facility and not be able to find their way home or may exit the facility without being dressed appropriately for the weather if it's really cold. Yeah, definitely. So a caller from Rapid City wants to know, does nursing home insurance cover assisted livings? Some nursing home insurance does cover assisted livings. You'd have to look at your policy. policy. So, so that's a policy decision. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll also cover home health. Okay. And so again, if you have an older policy, those are typically the ones that sometimes will cover some of those services. Uh, if you have a newer policy, sometimes they do not. So that's a policy specific uh, right. item. And something to look for specifically if you're shopping if for If you're shopping for it, that might be a good thing to look good at. Good thing yeah. to know, yep. So Sometimes those places have like a 90-day wait-in period. Mm. So the, the, uh, the nursing home insurance doesn't kick in for 90 days. So you have okay. to move into the assisted living. You pay for the first 90 days and then it'll mm. take over after that. So yeah. that's something also to pay attention to as mm -hmm. you're shopping for insurance. Yeah, and a lot of uh, facilities have kind of different levels of care where they'll have a senior apartment where there's no assistance or they may have like one communal meal. There's an assisted living where you're helping with, you know, meds and uh, some basic advanced yeah. ADLs. And then you've got the nursing home where you've got the advanced ADLs and, and full care. So definitely different levels. And once you get into one, it's much easier to move back and forth between the levels to the level of care that you need. In some facilities, some facilities require you to move apartments. And so you want to ask those questions if you are shopping around for an assisted living or a nursing home or something like that. Know that if I need higher level of care, do I have to move apartments or can I stay where I'm at? And so knowing that is very helpful because sometimes they'll tell you you have to move in order to be an assisted living. Uh -huh. And if you have to move, maybe you don't want to do that. And so maybe you'd prefer to find a different assisted living. So knowing uh -huh. those things is very helpful. All right. Well, an 80-year-old uh, viewer is losing her night vision and wondering, is that a common occurrence for people in their 80s? I don't know if it's a common occurrence, but I mean, I guess it is a common occurrence. Yeah, people in their <laughs> 80s have a tendency to lose their night vision. Sometimes that can be due to uh, glaucoma. Sometimes that can be due to cataracts. So sometimes mm -hmm. that can be due to a medical condition that certainly can be treated. So maybe something you want to get evaluated by your primary care physician, physician who may like send you doctor. to an, an yes. eye doctor, an optometrist, or an ophthalmologist. Yeah, definitely get that checked out. Because if it's something as simple as cataracts, that's very easily treated, where that can cause those halos around lights at night, make it very difficult to see. So, all right. Uh, a, Question from Facebook, what kind of help can a veteran or a retired veteran get? Um, I'm assuming through kind of like VA benefits or military benefits. The it VA will depend on your eligibility, but the VA mm -hmm. may help cover in-home care. Um, Medicare covers home health for acute problems, but not long-term. Um, but I've seen veterans or even their spouses um, have weekly nervous or weekly nursing services or home health aides covered by the VA to help keep them 
living in that community as opposed to having to move to an institution. Mm -hmm. The VA, I think, veteran service officer. The VA does very good from that perspective. So Mm -hmm. I would reach out to your veteran service officer and see what uh, resources they have available that you have available to you. Yes, definitely. So, a question from a viewer: Does the Medicaid expansion hurt the funding for those in need for nursing home, or does that involve other individuals? So I know that's the next big thing on the ballot about Medicaid expansion. I don't know specifically because I have not uh, looked at it uh, in depth, but I do think it will help. I don't, I don't think it's going to interfere with nursing home eligibility for Medicaid. So yeah. I don't anticipate Medicare ex- Medicaid expansion hurting any of the Medicaid services in the state of South Dakota. In fact, it'll only allow for more services and more availability. That may allow actually for a little bit opening up of some of those Medicaid services and allowing you to maybe uh, split that Medicaid so your spouse can be at home on the farm and you can be in a nursing facility on Medicaid without Mm -hmm. having difficulty. So I I think Medicaid expansion is gonna help us. Definitely. So another question, does the hospital have the power of attorney and DNR forms? Uh, Do they have a form? Do I need to go to an attorney to have this filled out? A very common question. Um, The hospital will have a sample form, Mm -hmm. at at least in the bigger hospital systems, that you can fill out and they can find a notary to help you complete it. Um, For a financial power of attorney, there are online forms, but I'd really recommend consulting a lawyer. And that was, would not also be a bad idea to do for a healthcare power of attorney to make sure that you understand what it does. Because a, a healthcare power of attorney, a durable one, is supposed to kick in if you yourself are not able to make decisions. Um, sometimes, well-meaning family members think they can make decisions for you when you still have the ability and they need to understand that's not the case but it's also very important to have the conversations with your family about what your wishes are Um, there's a difference between a living will and a power of attorney a living will sets down very specific conditions and says in this circumstance i would or would not want a particular kind of care, but it can't possibly cover everything and it can't cover variations in circumstances like a power of attorney for health care can. If you have a power of attorney, they can speak with your health care providers and learn about the risks and benefits of the different options for treatment or foregoing treatment in your particular case. Mm -hmm. So it gives them a lot more leeway. Yep. So, okay, well, about one minute left, Dr. Rees, any final thoughts, things you want to make sure our viewers hear or know? The only other thing I would add to that conversation is I think the conversation is important around assisted living and, uh, and power of attorneys and those types of things. So it's the conversation with the family and hearing from the patient what they would desire. And so that way it allows the healthcare power of attorney to act for you. The healthcare power of attorney is supposed to act in your behalf. They're not supposed to act in their interest, they're okay. supposed to act in the interest of the individual they're acting for. And so having that conversation with them, there are decision tools and those types of things that most healthcare systems have now. You can go online, five, five wishes sometimes is a good way to have start that conversation. There's actually a card game out there that you can use, but thinking about those types of things and having that conversation with your loved one, I think is the most important piece. 
Yes, definitely. So a lot of things that we talked about here, and I think the resounding um, theme that came through is communication. Communication with your doctor, communication with your family, um, being honest about concerns that family members may have, being honest about concerns that uh, you may have as a patient, and making sure that everyone is taken care of and that uh, what they want is respected and that they are given the dignity and support that they need. Yeah. So these are the people that took care of us and now it's our turn to help take care of them. So, Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Judy from Lennox. Thank you, Judy, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Listen today to the Prairie Doc Podcast, a weekly show hosted by Laura Ellsworth, as she talks with medical professionals, takes questions, and walks us through important health topics affecting those in our communities. Search for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcast today. Every day in the clinic or hospital, I meet extraordinary caregivers. They're the ones who have gone above and beyond the call of duty, sometime for years at a time. When you ask them how they do it, they just shrug and smile. I am not talking about any doctor, nurse, or therapist. I am referring to those who care for and look after their elderly friends and family members. This can be a spouse, adult child, adult grandchild, neighbor, or even a good friend. There are many reasons that people volunteer to be caregivers. Spouses can often not imagine living apart from each other. Adult children and grandchildren may want to return the care that they were given growing up. Neighbors often have a relationship of caring that spans years. Whatever the reason, these people answered the call for help. Those who have stepped up to care for another person deserve our praise and admiration. What they also deserve and need is our help and support. Caring for another person around the clock can be exhausting. Chronic health conditions like dementia, incontinence issues, or balance issues can further complicate that care. Caring for someone else can cause strain in relationships between spouses, siblings, and extended family. And I have seen caregivers ignore their own health and refuse admission to the hospital for themselves. They do this because they fear that there will be no one to care for their loved one if they are not there. The responsibility for caring for another person can affect all aspects of life for the caregiver. Jobs, school, and vacations can be challenging when taking on a full-time caregiving role. Even a trip to the grocery store is complicated when caring for someone who needs constant supervision to be safe. There are resources to, to help caregivers, but finding them can be difficult. Many caregivers do not know where to look for help. Adult daycare or respite care for weekends and nights can be difficult to find or prohibitively expensive. There are several national organizations with resources, such as AARP, the Alzheimer's Association, Family Caregiver Alliance, and the National Council on Aging. These organizations all have websites with great tips that can offer support to caregivers. Do not forget to reach out to your family member's primary care physician or clinic care coordinator. 
They may be able to help you reach out to local resources and support groups. Know that caregivers should never do this all alone. We want to help and support the care you give. The goal is keeping everyone happy, healthy, and well cared for, including the caregiver. Thank you for all that you do. How can we help? Well, thank you to our guests, Dr. Rees and Dr. Beatty, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about elder care. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or follow us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Organisms like bacteria, viruses, fungi, or parasites can be harmless or even helpful, but under certain conditions, some may cause disease. Infectious diseases, on call with the Prairie Doc. Effective use of information is the foundation of modern public health practice. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a volunteer board member for the Healing Words Foundation, the 501c3 that supports the Prairie Doc Media. Prairie Doc programming is designed to improve health literacy, including improving knowledge which is conducive to individual and community health. Founded by Rick and Joni Holm, Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours every week to share information based on science built on trust. Thank you for following Prairie Doc Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Plus, catch us most Thursday nights at 7 p.m. on SDPB. Because of your generous donations, all Prairie Doc programming is free and available to the public. If so inclined, make a donation today. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and click the donate button. Don't wanna donate online? Send us an email and our staff will send you a pledge card in the mail. Thank you for supporting the Prairie Doc, information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flander District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications.